Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or from men? Answer me. They began to argue among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was a genuine prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Good day again, everyone. Please uh, keep your Bibles open tonight, even more so than normal, uh, because we're going to be going through this whole chapter of chapter 11, uh, and we're going to be looking at it quite closely. I'm going to stretch your minds a little bit, hopefully, as we think about it. So uh, keep switched on, uh, but have your Bibles open. So if you didn't get a Bible before, I can still see some on the back table, and they even look like they're English ones and not Chinese ones. So uh, put up your hand if you need a Bible open in front of you and you didn't get one before, and Brendan will run it to you. Uh, But now, I'll pray as we get underway. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as uh, Matt read for us before, we pray that we would not be people who deceive ourselves. We would not be people who hear your word tonight, uh, but then ignore it, go away and forget it. Instead, we pray that you might imprint it on our minds and on our hearts, so that it might be said of us that we are doers of your word and not hearers only. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the past few weeks in Mark's Gospel, we've been on a a bit of a road trip with Jesus. I like road trip holidays. I like going driving. My children hate it. Uh, And they especially hate it because I'm one of those dads who says, when I was a boy, you know, and and that sort of thing. And so they always say, can we get a DVD player in the car? And I say, no, part of going on a road trip is to stare at the countryside and enjoy the countryside. But uh, last year I caved in and so now for trips longer than three hours they're allowed to have an in-car DVD. So you can be thankful my children are less mutinous on road trips than they were. But for the last few weeks we've been on a road trip with Jesus, we haven't been watching a DVD, Uh, we've been following closely in Mark's Gospel and we've been making, seeing him make his way to Jerusalem and we've sort of been there with the disciples. You remember if you haven't been away on holidays, you've been here, we've been with the disciples and you remember that they are excited on the one hand but they are very, very scared on the other hand because they know they're going to Jerusalem and so they're excited because they've worked out Jesus is the Messiah and they know that Jerusalem is, is the Messiah's city, it's the, the city of David. And so they're excited that he's going there. And you remember, they, they even said to him, are you going to be on a throne there? Can we sit on your right and your left? And they're very excited about that. But then on the other hand, Jesus keeps saying this sort of freaky stuff to them about when I get there, they're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. And eventually they're even going to kill me. And so the disciples are very confused uh, and a little bit scared. But by this time, it's not just Jesus and his disciples on the road to Jerusalem, they're actually part of like this massive crowd of people, literally thousands of people on the road to Jerusalem. And we have to understand this, I think people misunderstand this sometimes, these crowds weren't following Jesus. Uh, So the crowds you read about in these chapters weren't there saying we're following Jesus to Jerusalem, that's what the disciples were doing, but the rest of the crowds were heading to Jerusalem at the same time because they were going there for the Passover festival. So the Passover, if you haven't heard of it, the Passover is the most important thing in the whole Old Testament, just about. So the Passover for the Jews was, and still is today, sadly Jews still celebrate the Passover without understanding what it actually pointed to. 
But you remember what the Passover is? It comes from the book of Exodus, where God passed over his people as he judged Egypt. They painted the blood of the lamb on their door frames and God passed over them and saved them while he judged Egypt. So they celebrated that in Jerusalem every year. So at at a time of celebrations like this, the population of Jerusalem went up by six or eight or ten times. So it was usually 20 or 30,000 people uh, in Jerusalem in the world of that time. Uh, But at the time of these festivals, it went up to 250 or 300,000 people. And so these people were flocking from Galilee, where Jesus was from, but from all over the countryside to go to Jerusalem. So here is Jesus with all these crowds around him coming to Jerusalem. And about 30 miles from Jerusalem, as they're leaving a town called Jericho, uh, the crowds got to see this incredible miracle. Because this blind man, and we can read about this, just flick back to the end of chapter 10, the bit just before the chapter we read, uh, this blind man, Bartimaeus, cries out to Jesus and he he recognises who Jesus is. He calls him the son of David. Uh, And it's an incredible miracle because the man just comes to Jesus and Jesus doesn't do anything much. You know how in other miracles he spits on the ground and rubs the mud on his eyes and does something like that or lays his hands on him, doesn't do anything much like that. He just heals the man and he says to him, your faith has healed you. And so they carry on up the road to Jerusalem with Bartimaeus with them now. And just think about it, if you were part of the crowd, you got to see this. You're part of the crowd, you're just there going up to Jerusalem for the festival, but now there's this guy walking along with you who was blind until 15 minutes ago. But now he's walking along and the only thing that's happened is he's met Jesus. You can imagine how excited the crowd is at this point. Here they are walking with someone to Jerusalem who has just made a blind man see. They'd heard the rumours, but now they're seeing it firsthand. So they're asking, is this man God's saviour king? Because in the Old Testament it said, when the Messiah comes, the blind will see. So they think, well, we're seeing the blind see. Is this him? Is this the Christ? Is this the one who has come to save God's people. If Jesus was hoping for sort of a quiet entry into Jerusalem, to just sort of slip in unnoticed, then his hopes were dashed. So here they are, about to walk into the city of Jerusalem, and at at last, as part of this massive crowd, and then Jesus just quietly pulls aside two of his disciples and gives them these very strange, very specific instructions. I think they're some of the strangest verses in Mark's Gospel. Look at verse 2. He says, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here right away. So they went and found a young donkey outside the street tied by a door. They untied it and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the donkey? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. It's a really strange little moment, isn't it? You know, it's just this weird sort of thing where Jesus is going in and it spends all these verses explaining very specifically that he wanted them to go get not just any donkey, it wasn't go find me a donkey, it was go find that donkey that's tied up near that door and it has to be one no one's ever ridden and people are going to ask you a question and you're going to fob them off with what frankly is quite a lame excuse and they'll take that lame excuse even though it's not your donkey. And it's all very strange. Uh, and, and people always ask, how, what happened there? How did Jesus 
make that happen. Uh, that's what people get caught up on. And some people say, well, he must have prepared it in advance. He must have sent someone else along ahead with some money and secured the donkey and told people this is what's going to happen. But don't you think the guy that can heal the blind maybe could have just been prophetic at this point and he had worked out there's a donkey there you'll find it and he just engineered things to happen in that way but in the end it doesn't matter he could have done either but people get caught up on the how when what matters is why why did he want to ride up into Jerusalem when everyone else was walking was it just that Jesus had had enough of walking he'd walked all the way from Galilee he just said I've had enough last hundred meters it's me on the donkey no the the reason is that Jesus was very, very intentional all through the Gospels that everything he did would fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament. I want you to follow along with me closely here because this is really, really important. For me, this was instrumental in me 23 years ago becoming a Christian. I had to be convinced that the Bible was the Word of God and one of the things that convinced me was the way Jesus fulfilled prophecies written by all these different human authors over a thousand year period or longer and he fulfilled them so incredibly in the Gospels. So here, do you remember when we looked at Genesis last year? Can you all nod at me at that point? It would be very affirming for me that you remembered that we looked at Genesis last year at church. Remember when we looked at Genesis last year at church? Yes. And we looked at the Joseph story. Do you remember right at the end I said, I've actually been tricking you, it's not about Joseph, it's about Judah. And there was this prophecy about one descended from Judah who would come and be the king who ruled forever and who would save God's people. And in it, there were just these strange little verses in Genesis 49 that said, and he will tie up his donkey and untie his donkey. Do you remember that? And it was weird when we looked at it at the time. Well, here's Jesus making a big thing about you will untie that colt that foal of a donkey and then I'll take you'll take it back and tie it up again but more pointedly later in the Old Testament the prophet Zechariah had made all sorts of prophecies about the king who would come and save God's people and this was one of them it's on your outline have a look with me it's from Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 he says rejoice greatly daughter Zion shout in triumph daughter Jerusalem look your king is coming to you he is righteous and victorious humble and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey this is really really important up until now Jesus has not wanted the crowds to know who he is do you know we've seen that all through Mark's gospel he heals someone he says don't you dare tell anyone about it they always went and told someone about it but he at least tried to get them not to tell anyone about it and all that he says I don't want people to know he'd never declared himself to the world people with eyes to see had seen it they'd worked it out like Peter and the disciples but now as he's coming up to Jerusalem it's like he's pulling the curtains aside and he's just making it more and more clear to anyone by coming up into Jerusalem on a colt on the foal of a donkey Jesus is saying I am the one the whole Old Testament has promised you I am the one who the prophets talked about. He's saying, look, your king is coming into Jerusalem. And so disciples get the donkey, they put their coats on the animal because a king shouldn't ride it bareback. It's sort of like an impromptu saddle for him. And Jesus rides up into the city as the king. And it's like he's saying, I am your king. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with me? 
And what comes next is one of those great moments that we all know. Uh, If you grew up in a slightly more traditional church than ours, uh, sometimes on the Sunday before Christmas, people will have cut palm branches and the poor person in the church who happened to have palm trees had them decimated on this week of the year and people would put palm branches, you'd walk through the palm branches as you came to church. Anyone been in a church where that's happened on Palm Sunday? Uh, Or you might get given a little cross made out of a palm frond uh, or, you know, harmless stuff and pointing us to what happened here. Uh, But that is what was celebrated here. That's what became Palm Sunday because the people travelling with him, the pilgrims, they acclaimed Jesus. They put their robes on the road, which I just find strange, you know, you put your robe on the road to get trodden on by a donkey, but that's, it was sort of a way of sort of paying homage and they cut branches and they laid them down on the road uh, and they shout out Psalm 118. So you see there, look at verse 9, they shout out Hosanna, which means save us. But it actually become a bit more like hallelujah, you know, like a way of saying praise God, hosanna to God. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. The coming kingdom of our father David is blessed. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Now I just want us to think about this a little bit. I think a lot of people misunderstand this and create problems that aren't actually there. So some people say, how could all of Jerusalem come out and receive him like the king, how could that have happened and then they just rejected him three days later? Because that's what's going to happen in a few days' time. And and they say, how could all of Jerusalem receive him like this? And the Romans then go, who's this Jesus guy? You you know, why didn't it make more of, of an impact? But I think we need to understand that this wasn't the people of Jerusalem coming out to Jesus. I don't think they even realized Jesus was coming. Who this was, was this was all the pilgrims who'd seen him heal the blind man. That's who was doing this. And many of them were from Galilee in the north and they'd heard about Jesus for three years now at this point. And more than that, I don't think all of them actually thought he was the king. I don't think all of them necessarily knew what they were saying because that psalm, Psalm 118, was actually just the psalm they yelled out whenever they went into Jerusalem as pilgrims. It was the psalm you said as you walked up the hill to go to the temple to celebrate the Passover. You see, they prayed for God's salvation. They prayed that God would send his Messiah whenever they went on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But the thing about this time is the words they would have said every year actually meant something this year. The words they would have said every year were actually coming true this year. But I don't think they were all yet certain that Jesus was the king. If they were, they probably would have put him up on their shoulders and rushed him up to the palace and said, come on, take your throne. But actually, when they get in there, they all say, all right, see you later, go home. And Jesus is just left with his disciples again. If they really all thought he was the Messiah, something more would have happened here. But the point is, whether they knew it or not, Jesus was making his point by riding in on the donkey He was saying, I am God's saviour king. I am the Messiah. But in a sort of anti-climax, if you look there at verse uh, 11, uh, having made his entry, Jesus then probably turns around and goes back outside Jerusalem again. He sort of rode in as the king and then said, I'm going to come back tomorrow. So that's what he does. He goes to the town of Bethany, which is about two miles away where he was staying. Which brings us to the second incident in this chapter. So look with me from verse 12. Because the next day, As they walked into Jerusalem from Bethany, Jesus is hungry. That's not that outlandish. It's a two-mile walk. I get hungry walking 
from upstairs to downstairs in my house. So <laughs> Jesus got hungry, he spots a fig tree, it's got some leaves, it looks healthy uh, and so he goes to see if it's got any fruit. But when he doesn't find anything, he does something really strange. He curses the fig tree. So he says, look at verse 14, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. That's strange on a number of levels. Jesus is talking to a tree, first of all. Uh, but it's strange in that. Lots of people really struggle with this. I don't know if you do. Uh, because this is Jesus' only destructive miracle. Every other miracle Jesus does gives life. He heals people. He calms a storm. He, you know, he deals with problems. Here, it's destructive. He, he makes this tree wither and die, we're going to see. And people don't like it because people say this is Jesus sort of acting like a spoilt child, uh, abusing his power. You know, it's not the tree's fault it didn't have any figs on it and Jesus is just having a go at it sort of thing. But they've missed the point. The clue is there in verse 13. See, in verse 13, Mark just tells us, it's like he says, of course he wasn't going to find any fruit because it's not the season for figs. Jesus knew you don't get figs in spring. You get them in summer. You see, no, Jesus led them to that tree knowing there was not going to be any fruit there to make a point. He's using that fig tree and the way it looks really healthy with lots of green leaves but doesn't have any fruit to eat. He's using that as like a sermon illustration. See, he gave much better sermon illustrations than I ever did. Mine are always about cricket and football and other boring things. But that's, this is Jesus saying, this is, I'm giving you an illustration here. What happens to this fig tree is going to tell you about something far more important than fig trees. But at this point, he doesn't explain it because it's what happens next is what it's pointing to. So let's keep going. Look with me from verse 15. It says, They came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple complex and began to throw out those buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the money changers' tables and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple complex. This is just one of those moments in the gospel, just every once in a while, where Jesus sort of breaks out of the gentle Jesus, meek and mild picture that people like to keep him in. And you see Jesus angry. That's what he is here. Jesus is livid. He is angry and he is angry at what he has seen them do to his father's house. The temple is where God symbolically dwelt on earth. And Jesus is angry at the way they have treated it. Now, I have to understand here, sometimes people sort of overstate how bad what they'd done was. Uh, they hadn't sort of set up Paddy's Market in the temple. They weren't selling pirated DVDs and tie-dye sarongs and all those sort of things. They were selling religious stuff. They were selling animals for people to sacrifice. Because if you'd come all the way from Galilee you needed an animal to take into the temple to sacrifice. So they had one for sale for you to buy and, and take on in. And, and you only had Roman money. And Ro you couldn't give Roman money to God. You had to change it into temple money to make an offering in the temple. But the point is, up until AD 30, that is about three years before this time, up until then, that was all done outside the temple. You got to Jerusalem and you went to the markets and you got your lamb and you got your money changed. But the Caiaphas, the high priest at that time, who was the most corrupt high priest in the history of Israel, which is saying something, he had brought that in to the outer court of the temple. Can you work out why he would have done that? 
so that he could take a cut of all their profits, a tax on all their profits for himself. It's always about money. And you see, what they'd done is the outside court of the temple, the temple wasn't just one big room. It had a little room and then a bigger room and then a bigger room and a bigger room. And the outside room, right around the outside, was the court of the Gentiles. And it was the only place where non-Jews could go to meet with God, to worship God, to hear about God. And so they had turned the only place where people like you and me, unless you're Jewish, the only place where we could go in the world of that time to meet God, they had turned that into a marketplace. So you can only imagine the chaos as Jesus just goes in there and overturns tables and, and, and sort of throws the money away and drives all the animals out. It was just chaos. And then, and I, they don't say it, but I imagine him yelling it out. Look at verse 17. Is it not written... My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Remember I said before, Jesus is always talking about and fulfilling the Old Testament. Well, he's doing it again here. It sounds like he's just sort of saying truths about what they've done. But here he's quoting two passages from the Old Testament. He's quoting Isaiah 56, where God had said, this is what the temple is for. This is what you have this temple in Jerusalem for. It is a house of prayer for all the nations. So Jesus is saying, you have turned this place where you're meant to be praying for the world, you've turned it into a den of thieves. And at that point, he's also quoting Jeremiah 7. Because in Jeremiah 7, God warned Israel, don't think that just because you've got the temple that I will look after you. Jeremiah 7 is one of the scariest chapters in the Bible, I think, because he says to the religious people of Israel, don't think that just because you're religious, I'm not going to come and judge you. He says, don't you dare think that just because you're descended from Abraham and called a Jew and you have a temple, don't think I'm not going to come and wipe you out. I will judge you for your sin, is what God says to them in Jeremiah 7. Don't pretend to be religious and think that can save you. So Jesus is saying at this point, all of those prophecies are coming true and I am the one fulfilling them. I have come, God will judge you, your corrupt and hypocritical religion. And you see, they should have known this. The last prophet in the Old Testament, the last book in the Old Testament is the prophet Malachi. And just look on your outline at what Malachi chapter 3 said the Lord would do. It says, then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you desire, see he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like cleansing lye. You see, Jesus was saying, I have come to wipe this all out. I have come to get rid of all this corrupt religion and to judge you for it. See, no normal human being would ever have the courage to walk into the temple and do what Jesus did. It was sacrilegious. But Jesus is saying, I am no ordinary human being. The Lord is here. The Lord is here in his house, here to wipe away your corrupt and fruitless religion, here to really open up the way to God for both Jew and Gentile. See, Jesus is actually making it very, very clear at this point for whoever wants to know, I am the Messiah. 
I am God's son and I've come to judge as well as to save. So as Eddie wondered that, look at verse 18. Then the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to destroy him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. The, the corrupt religious leaders had always hated Jesus. But now things were coming to a head. And the fact that the crowd loved him so much, the fact that the crowd thought he was so amazing, that's why they hated him even more. So it's at this point that Jesus had to die. His death warrant was signed. They were just finding a way to do it from this point on. But they were going to have to wait because by day he was surrounded by the crowds and they didn't want to get the crowds offside. And by night he kept sneaking out and sleeping at Bethany two miles away. Which brings us back to the fig tree. Remember the fig tree? Because the next morning, as they walk back towards Jerusalem, they come back to that tree, which remember the day before had green leaves and looked healthy. And now a day later, what does it say in verse 20? They saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And of course, straight away, Peter remembers. Look at verse 21. Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And at this point, do you notice Jesus doesn't have to explain it to them? If you haven't worked out what the fig tree is, you've come too late on a Sunday night after too big a weekend. I don't know. If you haven't worked out that he's saying the fig tree is like that temple. The fig tree is like those corrupt chief priests and that corrupt religion. They have wonderful green leaves. They look healthy. They've got this wonderful temple. They look religious with all their lambs to sacrifice and all their money to give, but they are fruitless. They have turned the place where God wanted people to come and meet him and find him. They have turned it into a den of robbers. They're more interested in making money than in seeing God's name glorified in the nations. And even when I came, the Messiah, they've plotted to kill me. They are like the fig tree. They are like all leaves with no fruit and as Peter and the other disciples looked at that now withered fig tree and remembered what Jesus had just done at the temple they knew what he was talking about they knew he was saying God is going to judge that temple and in just a few years God would wipe it out and not leave one stone on top of another God's people were going to be judged for their fruitlessness the temple that they had abused was going to be destroyed And the old religion would be wiped away because the new king was here. Now Jesus was speaking to a very, very specific moment in history here. He was announcing judgment on Israel specifically at that point. That is the primary meaning of what's going on here. This is a history lesson more than anything else. But I think it should also challenge us to be very, very careful not to fall into the trap of trusting in fruitless religion. And I particularly want to talk to you if you are someone who has grown up in a Christian home, if you were baptised as a child, you've been a Christian a long time and where just coming to church has become like a habit for you. We need to be wary that we are not the lovely looking fruit tree with lots of green leaves who bears no fruit. We need to be very, very careful and be very, very aware of being the Christian equivalent of the Jew who presumes on God, of putting on a show of religion, of saying to others, isn't he pious? Isn't she godly? 
when in our heart we are unchanged and when once we walk out from these walls, we act like a pagan in the way we treat other people and in the way we live, of putting on a show of religion rather than cultivating a real and living and life-transforming faith in Jesus. I just want to say, never forget that withered fig tree. Never forget what happened to the temple. Don't trust in your religiousness. Cultivate a real and living faith in Jesus, based in his word. So we can take that warning, but here Jesus' point was actually more radical than that. He was saying, a new time has come. You don't worship God in a temple of stone anymore. You don't find God in that corrupt religion in Jerusalem. In John's Gospel, he makes it even clearer. He says, I am the temple. What he means is, I am where you meet with God. You don't come to a building. That's why we can meet here in a church or in a school hall or in a bank auditorium if they let us, or under a tree for that matter. It doesn't matter. There's nothing special about this building. It's not a temple. It's a not very good rain shelter that sometimes leaks. And we should be thankful how rarely it rains. Anyway... But you see my point, Jesus is saying, no, no, you don't come to a building. You don't meet me in religion. You meet God in Jesus. As you come and trust in him and as you come and put your faith in him. Who needs hypocritical religion when you can have personal access to God through his son? That's the message of the gospel. That's the wonderful truth. If we come back to the story and just the last little part here... Peter, it's like he's just sort of stuck on the fig tree. He's just amazed by the fig tree. It was leafy yesterday and it's withered from the roots up today. He's just sort of caught on it. And Jesus just takes the opportunity to to take his amazement and use it as an example to him and teach him something and teach us something. We're short of time given all what we did before. uh, But I only want to look at just one aspect of what he teaches here and that is about faith and prayer so how could this happen is Peter's question how could with a word this wig tree be this fig tree be withered that's hard to say this fig tree be withered and Jesus then says we'll just have faith in God sometimes people look at this and they say oh Jesus didn't really say this here because it just doesn't seem to flow with what's happened before and people like to say Mark might have just Jesus said it but Mark just sort of put it here in the gospel, but I don't think that's what happened. Jesus is responding to their sort of incredulity, I cannot even say that word, incredulity at what's happened to the fig tree. And he says, that's what God can do when you believe him, when you have faith in him. God can do anything. God can wither a fig tree. God can move, he says, that mountain from over there to over there. That's what God can do. So Jesus says to his disciples, have faith in God and how do you express that faith by praying to him prayer is faith in action if we do not pray then we are trusting in ourselves and not God prayer shows the reality of faith when we pray we say I believe I believe that God is powerful to do something now Jesus is speaking in exaggeration to make his point. Look at these verses from verse uh, 22 down. 
Uh, he's speaking in exaggeration. He's not expecting Peter to now just randomly ask God to move mountains around the countryside and change the geography of the world. He's not expecting that. And people who take this verse, as people sometimes do, as if you just believe hard enough that God will give you a red Ferrari, God will give you a red Ferrari. People who say that are just fools. You can't change the mind of God. And just in a couple of chapters, Jesus is going to say, I pray that God's will be done even more than my will. Now, Jesus' point here is, Peter, if you are amazed by this withered tree, you haven't seen anything yet. Because if you believe in God and you pray to him, he can do amazing things. See, if you believe in God, then pray to him. I've been wondering why I've been pushing so hard for us to grow in prayerfulness as a church over the last 12 months. This is why. Don't just pray for little things. Our God can move mountains. Our God can wither fig trees in a day. Our God can do amazing things. We will not always get the answer we want. But he says, if you believe in me, then pray. See, the God we worship can raise the dead. So he can change an atheist's heart and turn them into an evangelist. If you have a friend or family member who is an atheist, pray for them because God is powerful to change them. He can see whole families converted. That is the God we believe in. He's not powerless. He is totally powerful. So let's pray to him in faith. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us here. That is the God we worship. There's so much more in this passage about forgiveness and authority and lots of other things. We're going to finish there. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the God who can move mountains to be at work in us here. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful chapter of Scripture where we see that Jesus did not just come out of nowhere but instead he is the fulfillment of all your promises from all of history. And we thank you for the way he so clearly fulfills all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And we thank you that he is your saviour king. Father, we pray that we would not fall into the trap of trusting in religion, and in particular corrupt and fruitless religion. Instead, Father, we pray that every person here might know the joy of meeting Jesus as our Lord and saviour. And Father, we pray that we here would be a people of faith. Help us to truly believe that you can move mountains, that you are the sovereign God of the universe. And so we pray that we as individuals and as a church here, that we might be prayerful and that we might pray big prayers and that we might pray for you to be at work in this broken and fallen world and to bring your mercy and salvation to all. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.